soaring core inflation, rising interest rates, and tightening money supply in the U.S. and Europe for the first time in 30-plus years. It's no wonder treasurers are asking, how can I make working capital work harder in 2023? We'll discuss all this and more on today's Treasury Insights podcast. I'm Pete Ziegenfuss, and joining me today in the hot seat are Bank of America's Matthew Davies, the Global Head of Transaction Services in the EMEA region, and our co-head of Global Corporate Sales, and then Bruce Muley, Treasury Advisory Executive and our go-to guy for all things working capital management. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks for having me, Pete. Hi, Pete. Looking forward to the discussion. As mentioned, guys, this is the first part of a four-part series exploring our predictions for 2023, and we're kicking it off with working capital, which is definitely an evergreen topic in the Treasury space. So, Matthew, I mentioned the backdrop of a challenging macro, and it seems like black swan events are as frequent as London buses at the moment. So, what do you see as the primary working capital considerations for corporates this year? Well, Pete, it's often said that if cash is king, then working capital is queen. And I think that frequency of black swan events that you referred to there really means that most treasurers have been very, very focused on working capital optimization for quite some time now. And they know that one of the best ways they can prepare for all of these known unknowns is to have tight governance and controls around working capital. To this end, we've definitely seen a real focus on automating liquidity and FX management on our platform. We've also seen the implementation of cash forecasting and intelligent receivables tools to really help better manage liquidity and aid faster cash application. Every year, Deloitte releases its global treasury survey. And if you look at the 2022 survey, you will see it was noted there that working capital optimization was one of the fastest growing CFO mandates on the treasury team. And I think this top-down approach is definitely helping to drive positive momentum and change. And it's also shifted from a buyer to a seller-led market in many industries, given all of the supply chain issues hitting the factory gate. And I think it'll be interesting to see how corporates can thread that needle in terms of ensuring supply without having to concede too much in terms of aggressive payment terms or higher minimum order amounts. Assuming the central banks can't stick the elusive soft landing, our economists are predicting or forecasting a mild downturn later this year. You, Matthew, have experienced several economic cycles throughout your career. I think that's a nice way of saying you're old, by the way. But if we do see a downturn, how do you feel it may differ from prior recessions and how are treasurers better equipped going into this one? Well, thanks for the compliment, Pete. You're too kind. Look, transaction banking definitely sees the impact firsthand as what we offer, whether that's cash visibility, liquidity solutions, or supply chain finance, only become even more important in a downturn. And in many ways, I feel very positive as the 2008 recession definitely propelled working capital to the heart of the Treasury function. Almost overnight, Treasurer's remit expanded to include the role of working capital champion across the broader organization. In fact, we saw some people actually being given a specific role, a specific mandate for managing working capital. As a result, that idea of instilling a cash culture across corporations became very real in many companies. And cross-functional teams explored numerous ways to improve working capital management, looking at everything from culling paper to reduce postal clearing and processing flow to installing supply chain finance programs so they can extend payment terms without negatively impacting vendors. And if you think about it, 
put it simply, most treasury teams are wildly more sophisticated now from a working capital management perspective than they were going into previous downturns. The other thing we need to think about is that digitization drive and imperative that really came as a result of the pandemic has also helped give most teams the tools that they need to monitor situations in real time and make working capital-related decisions much faster. There's also been a pretty dramatic shift in many organizations underlying business models over the last few years, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, whether that be gig, D2C, verticalization, or recurring revenue bundles, subscription models, et cetera. These changes can really materially impact a company's working capital profile, both positively and negatively. So it's now often a core consideration during strategic planning, leading to a much more considered approach where working capital really is at the core of the business model. Finally, it is also worth noting that if we do go into a downturn, banks are much better capitalized than they were in prior recessions. And that's really thanks to years of heightened regulatory focus and increased capital adequacy requirements. It's really critical for companies that you are happy with your bank group from a counterparty and support perspective. And that includes using your banks to get sound advice and discuss options for working capital management support. All right. Thanks, Matthew. And I agree. Banks are definitely well-placed to support. And the idea of having really clear ownership going into this downturn is definitely different from prior cycles, which will help and keep Treasury front and center. So, Bruce, turning to you, you're definitely our man on the beat, out meeting with clients every day. What are you hearing since the start of 2023? Thanks, Pete. The topic of optimizing working capital is definitely an area of focus again, and it's not just due to the increased cost of carry. Some of the key themes we are seeing emerging are treasurers reigniting transformation programs. This is normally driven by cost effectiveness and the need to ensure that treasury is fit for purpose moving into the future. We're also seeing the availability of new technology and tools, which are now becoming more mainstream. This is supporting the drive for further automation. Another key theme is the need to upgrade core systems. Good example of this is a lot of our clients in EMEA using SAP for a core ERP system and quite often for Treasury as well. The upgrade to S4 HANA, which is quite a significant upgrade, is something which a lot of corporates are either thinking about or in the process of doing. One of the results of this is the better provision of workflow tools and analytical tools, and off the back of that, or supporting that, data. Centralization continues, and this is changing the role of Treasury. There's less oversight, and now more direct ownership and action. Treasury is starting to manage the processes directly as necessarily providing that oversight and reporting back. This is extending into global liquidity models and OVO structures. Good examples around POBO structures and the continued rise of the in-house bank. And this all enables Treasury to increase its scope into the world of working capital. This includes extending the remit of Treasury from short-term cash, say one to three months, to up to 12 months on a time horizon. I can say I've had multiple requests from clients over the last six to 12 months to advise on how Treasury can extend their cash forecasting capability out to that 12 months duration. And effectively, this is into the realms of working capital. 
but they also are then looking for the ability to reconcile that forecast with FPNA budgeting and planning processes. All right, great points, Bruce. And I definitely recognize that as for HANA transition you mentioned, ahead of SAP sunsetting support of some of their prior versions. It's definitely got a lot of headline with some of our corporate clients, just given how many parts of the business it touches across the supply chain and order to cash and procure to pay cycles. So sticking with you, Bruce, given the emerging themes, why do you think that working capital management is so critical for corporates to manage in the current environment? The pandemic focused prioritization on the management of liquidity, but there are a number of factors that have resulted in more corporates outside of the previously low margin industries to focus on working capital. Some of these factors include the continued supply chain issues, the compression of operating margins, and the changes in the flow of revenues we have seen in some industries, for example, the increase in subscription models, which Matthew referred to earlier. The refocus on cost effectiveness for previously high growth, always positive cash flow sectors, such as the tech sector and the gig economy corporates, has meant that there are more corporates looking and focusing on working capital. You add into that mix the desire to get back onto a growth path through either organic growth or acquisition, then the group of corporates looking to refocus has significantly increased. There is also a technology push factor at play. There has been a significant technology capability improvement that allows for more end-to-end and forensic approach to managing working capital. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on, Pete. Now, payments have definitely become an increasingly important working capital consideration over the last few years. For example, clients would traditionally delay any payment as long as possible, suddenly realize that if they were long in a negative rate currency like Japanese yen, the supplier is offering sort of standard early payment discount terms of, say, 1 in 10 net 30. That effectively presents the opportunity to take an 18% discount versus paying 10 pips to hold that cash on account. So that's a good trade. Matthew, can you talk us through your thoughts around the concept of using payments as a working capital tool? To your point, Pete, I think this is really about understanding your commercial payments and how they can be segmented. And working capital is a great source of cash, and treasurers will definitely be weighing up these opportunities given the increased cost of capital in a higher rate environment. Supply chain finance has been a real focus and an efficiency driver for most corporates over the last few years. And they've installed successful programs with increased supplier uptake that has really benefited payment terms extension. And this has been great for those strategic suppliers. And we now anticipate that many corporates are going to start to explore that long tail of supplier payments, the non-strategic vendors and indirect spend suppliers. Quite often, these lie outside the scope of a supply chain finance program, but it's a very much cardable types of spend that can be reached by a purchase card or virtual payables or other solutions that provide similar working capital management uplift and ultimately rebate. On another note, supply chains also experienced a lot of change last year as many pivoted away from a long-term focus on just-in-time where they prioritized low DIO and non-obsolescence to an increased focus on just-in-case supply chain management approach where clients really prioritize surety of supply given recent production issues and stockouts. 
And this has definitely added a necessary but somewhat challenging layer of complexity to the working capital equation. I think as physical supply chains become more just-in-case financial supply chains will become more just-in-time to help make up the difference. Payments, whether it be reducing float, multilateral netting, or instant payments, will definitely help play a role here in this transition to one-time treasury. Great points, Matthew. And I think that transition from just-in-time to just-in-case will be interesting to see how that plays out. Plus, some of the stuff we're hearing around sort of nearshoring and some of those efforts, there's a lot in flux. Recent surveys have been citing favorable trends across all three of these core metrics. And some areas like DPO seem to be kind of reaching almost a terminal rate as many corporates have started to embed SCF programs. Those have gotten maturity and they've maxed out some of the payment term extension benefit they'll see there. So, Bruce, clearly these results vary by industry, but how do you feel these age-old working capital metrics are shifting? And are you now seeing these more as performance metrics, control metrics, and how should treasurers be thinking about this? In terms of your question, Pete, working capital metrics can be either performance or control metrics. This may be worth just pausing around what that means. If you're moving into a controlled space around working capital, that means you've optimized, you understand the ins and outs, and you have the ranges in which you want to manage that working capital within. So it's more about controlling within that range and managing exceptions. So this is more towards the mature end of the scale of working capital management maturity. And this can depend where you are in relation to your peers, your treasury sophistication, and relative to your long-term trends and baselines. You always get some movement around these figures as everyone looks to extend payment terms, as you mentioned, but also where, say, AR or credit control teams seek to draw in DSO and even put some suppliers with lesser credit profiles on cash terms. On top of this, that shift from just-in-time to just-in-case supply strategies that Matthew mentioned will definitely reap havoc on inventory days as firms thread a delicate balance in terms of securing supply without overstocking and all the complexities that this will bring. It is critical that Treasury is regularly measuring working capital and provides clear guidance on the range that they are comfortable with in terms of their overarching business model and business environment. I see a lot of corporates moving to more operating cash flow metrics and away from the cash conversion cycle. The cash conversion cycle metrics are expressed in days, but they are essentially a coverage ratio and can be difficult to reconcile to underlying causal factors. There is an increasing capability with access to new tools and more quality on-demand data to forensically manage working capital now. For example, the ability to drill down from a high-level metric to the underlying transactions underpinning that metric allows investigation into the unexpected variances and to perform root cause analysis. And this ultimately enables timely action to be taken and to mitigate or account for these variances. And Bruce, you mentioned that word data, and I sometimes think digital is almost in danger of reaching near buzzword status, but many treasurers are using new tech to drive more efficiencies in the supply chain and across working capital. So could you just share some of your thoughts on how teams can use tech to benefit working capital? A few high-level points. One, as a working capital is an end-to-end or enterprise-level process, you need to work with a cross-functional team. 
to effectively optimise that working capital and then manage it on an ongoing basis. And I believe Treasury and or Finance are well placed to lead this team too. Look for short-term gains, but don't look for a silver bullet. It's normally the combination of many smaller process and automation initiatives that deliver results. Three, establish an enterprise management methodology, often process-led, and gain the technological capability to investigate and manage working capital at the top line and then down to the transactional level. And lastly, look to gain on-demand capability using the best available timely data. It's not just about being real-time, but being on-time, matching the capability to the need. Thanks, Bruce. I think that point on cross-functional alignment really resonated with me, just given that there's so many teams that touch on working capital. If you think about it, you know, AP, AR, credit control, finance, procurement, supply chain, and sales, it really is potentially a very fragmented space. And that makes it even more critical that someone really owns the working capital piece across the continuum. It's really important to make sure these individuals' team's goals are aligned to the greater organizational good and to kind of chair the triage on key events when working capital at the fore. So we've covered a lot of best practices and key considerations, but I do want to close with your top tips so we can give listeners a few practical takeaways for the podcast. So Matthew, let's start with you. I'd start by echoing the points that Bruce made and you just made as well, Pete, around ownership. As important as the topic of working capital is, it often lacks a true home in many organizations. And There's definitely a lot of links in the chain, which can also mean more potential points of failure. So with that in mind, I think it's an important topic for treasurers to take ownership on. And it's also a great opportunity for the treasury team to step up, given the gravity of the topic. And secondly, make sure you've covered the basics. Get at least some same-day visibility across all your accounts globally. Centralize primary currency positions using physical and or notional pooling. Automate the closure of minor currency positions using cross-currency sweeps, and of course, get rid of paper. There's typically a lot of low-hanging fruit or quick wins on the table when it comes to working capital optimization. Bruce, top tips? Thanks, Pete. When you look at the various treasury surveys in the industry, a near constant in the top three priorities is cash flow forecasting. Given this long-term focus, I'd like to think we're making some progress on forecasting as an industry. And B of A has recently launched new solutions such as Cash Pro Forecasting to help our clients in this regard. But to bring it back to working capital, my top tip is to expand this forecasting imperative from cash, which is the traditional realm of treasury, to working capital. What will this do? It'll allow you to get more accurate on your cash flow forecasting overall, but also then including not just a short-term, medium-term horizons. And then to build a more detailed picture of the underlying working capital drivers and assumptions across the various stakeholders. And that's the real end-to-end view that Matthew was talking about. And this essentially extends the strategic role of Treasury by further enabling the business to achieve its current and or future objectives. All right. Thanks, guys. I'll close out just with one more recommendation, which is really just to build awareness. Those 
key metrics we discussed earlier. Definitely in the sort of it's my job to know bucket for most treasurers. And we anticipate it will become even more into focus this year, given just as Matthew said, I think working capital is such a great source of cash. I think there'll be a lot more pressure on self-funding, given the sort of rising cost of debt and refinancing maturity wall is definitely higher in the US and Europe this year than it has been in prior years. We often see this sort of trickle-down scenario where working capital gets raised by an analyst on an earnings call and then gets handballed by the CFO to the treasurer. So it's just really important that the teams prepare for this eventuality and can speak to the detail on those metrics and the context specifically for your industry. Firms like Hackett, PwC, KPMG, they publish some really great reports and benchmarks that go into detail around the specific industry verticals. And then also to have a look at these by your competitive peer group. Again, thank you, gentlemen. That's part one for our Look Ahead series, and we'll be back in a week or two with another topic. And finally, thank you very much, Matthew and Bruce, for your insight and time today. I definitely know we'll be watching these trends closely over the remainder of the year. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Always a pleasure. I'm Pete Ziegenfuss, and my co-hosts today have been Matthew Davies and Bruce Muley. Thank you for listening to the Treasury Insights Podcast. Bank of America and B of A Securities are the marketing names used by the global banking and global markets divisions of Bank of America Corporation. Lending, other commercial banking activities, and trading in certain financial instruments are performed globally by banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, including Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Trading in securities and financial instruments and strategic advisory and other investment banking activities are performed globally by investment banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, investment banking affiliates, including in the United States, B of A Securities Incorporated and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp., both of which are registered broker-dealers and members of SIPC and in other jurisdictions by locally registered entities. B of A Securities Incorporated and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp. are registered as futures commission merchants with the CFTC and are members of the NFA. Investment products offered by investment banking affiliates are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.